You're listening to The Science of Storytelling, presented by Pressboard, a show about marketing, media, and the people making it happen. Your host is Jared Grimm. On today's Science of Storytelling episode, I'm chatting with Eric Bradner. Eric's the general manager of Creative Lab at McClatchy. He shares his career path from sports journalist all the way to branded content, the unique experience of working with the military in a couple of roles, and why local expertise is so important to brands. If you like this episode, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review. Now, let's get to the show. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to speaking with you. You are the general manager of the Creative Lab at McClatchy. So I don't know if everybody knows what McClatchy is. A lot of times with media properties or media organizations, they're named after you know, a newspaper like the New York Times or the Washington Post. So it's it's fairly clear. But McClatchy is different. McClatchy isn't, I don't think, is the name of, of any of the properties that you own. So maybe let's start off with what is McClatchy and what does McClatchy do as a business? No, for sure. Um, McClatchy, you're absolutely right. It's a 163 now, I believe, year old media organization um, that owns 30 news entities, news organizations across the country. Um, it's one of those things. I came up in newspapers, so you always you always stop yourself when you're about to say newspapers, especially with the uh, with the changing face of the media landscape. And that's something that we work really hard to, to dispel, that we are definitely digital news outlets at this point. So you might know McClatchy, not so much from the name McClatchy, but from the Sacramento Bee, the Miami Herald, the Kansas City Star, uh, the Charlotte Observer, own 30 um, daily news outlets around the country and really bring some great award-winning local journalism, more than 50 Pulitzer Prizes um, all time, and just some really great hard-hitting stuff. A lot of the Jeffrey Epstein um, breaking news pieces uh, came out of McClatchy. Um, A lot of the Panama Papers stuff from a few years ago came out of McClatchy as well. So really, uh, really great news organization. Yeah, I remember with the Panama Papers, that was that was a really interesting scenario that happened it was different organize news organizations internationally working together i think was it was it the miami herald or who was it at mcclatchy i think one of them was spearheading it yeah absolutely from the state side it was uh the out of the dc bureau a gentleman a reporter named kevin hall and a lot of other folks i'm more on that um and ended up bringing uh bringing a lot of really interesting things to light i wish uh i wish i had more encyclopedic background on it it's been a bit since i read it but the part that struck me that was so great, and I think the I could be wrong about this, but I think the a lot of the awards came under the um, masthead of the Miami Herald was just the relationship that the video team and the reporting team had together, really making some amazing stuff. I mean, there's a there's an explainer about money laundering and how it works with Russian nesting dolls and 3D, and I mean, it just gets it gets super complicated, but. From somebody who bridges the gap between writing and video, like my career has, that that stuff's completely enamoring, and it's just really, it's great, valuable public service journalism, but it's also just really fascinating ways to tell a story. Yeah, and you've been, your background is in journalism. Did did you did you always want to be involved in the media or journalism or reporting in one way or another? That I'm always, you know, really interested. Do people end up the general manager of a creative lab at McClatchy? Is that the job where they're, you know, most kids want to be a fireman or an astronaut or something like that? <laughs> For sure. Is something that I, I it, that actually is one of those things that a kid can want to do. I remember, you know, maybe there's even, there's even Halloween costumes where you've got like a press hat. Like, <laughs> I don't think my job was ever 
you know if you have a job that a kid wants if there's a Halloween costume for it. That's yes. how I think. <laughs> oh no, absolutely no. I wanted to uh, my Halloween costumes reflected what was certainly my first passion, which was sports. But I mean, by the time I was ten or so, I realized that I was not going pro in anything that required uh, an excessive amount of elite coordination. So. <laughs> journalism and storytelling was just, it was always the natural fallback. I would say, I mean, I was kind of lucky in the sense that by the time I was, you know, nine or 10 or so, which sounds kind of ridiculous thinking back on it being 40 now, but was totally true. I knew what I was going to do. Um, it was just a matter of, you know, making sure that I did the right things and got on the right path to do it. But from, from the point that I went to college, I never, even, even when I under started understanding the value of money and, and what it's like to be a very young journalist and, um, and, and that sort of uh, that sort of situation when you're um, when you're when you're out there and you're doing what you love, but you're not necessarily on a path to be an investment banker or something to that effect. I still never wanted to veer course. The storytelling, the journalism, it's just everything that I always wanted to do. And I mean, I remember still to this day sitting in the press box at uh, at uh, Penn State for the first sun or the first Saturday night nationally televised football game that I was covering. Like right out of college, I got a job as a beat reporter covering Penn State football and some high school sports in central Pennsylvania. It was a fantastic job. Learned just so much there. And I just remember sitting there in the press box being like, Matt, this was, I, I know where I am and I know like what I got to do in life and whatnot, but this was, this part was completely worth it. So it's kind of just been a journey from there. It hasn't been linear, obviously, because I'm in uh, I'm on the flip side now. And I definitely did a foray into nonprofits as well, which was incredibly rewarding. And I hope to go back to that someday. But yeah, it's so yeah. always been about storytelling. Let's talk about that. So your first entrance into, let's call it the media world, because you know you've, the thing that has stayed the same, it seems, is that you've stayed within some sort of storytelling or media related uh, so you start off being a beat reporter covering sports and then and then where did you go from there? Uh started off there for a couple of years and then I went to Stars and Stripes which has been in the news for um some unfortunately not so great reasons not for their doing but obviously funding and uh some situations like that but I was there for uh, 8 years. I was a editor there. Um I eventually got to run their Pacific Editions it was just a great experience and learned so much there. And then I actually moved over into nonprofits. Um, I've never served a day in my life in the military. I certainly have a ton of respect for anybody who puts on the uniform. Um, but just through the way that, you know, a lot of people, especially young people starting out their career and trying to mold it, end up getting, uh, getting jobs. I ended up going from Stars and Stripes, where a fellow former sports reporter um, in my sphere um, was able to get me in, over to the USO. Certainly much heralded um, military nonprofit. You see them in airports still. And I was the head of their storytelling team from around uh, some point in 2011, probably summer 2011, until the beginning of 2017 when I moved over to McClatchy. Very different, but incredibly rewarding. And you meet so many different people from so many walks of life that talk about a perspective adder and not from a, not from sort of a cliched way where you watch something on TV and sit back and say, oh, really makes you think, but from a sort of diving into the lives of folks who... Um, you may not have um, great have had great exposure to um, throughout life and really learning their stories and telling their stories for really good reasons, because you're doing it for an organization that's basically out there. One, they've got their back and two, they're trying to find new and innovative ways to help them um, as the military and the life of people who serve in the military evolves. So that was that was a fun and just completely rewarding experience. And yeah. then uh, McClatchy after that. So Stars and Stripes uh, mm -hmm. is the 
Is it independent news property for the military? Maybe I'm so I'm Canadian. I <laughs> know less about some of these areas. It's interesting. I mean, I I've worked in the U.S. with you know U.S. customers and partners for a long time, but growing up as a Canadian, there isn't as much. I guess, you know, options of we don't really have a big military presence or part of our upbringing. Uh, like if you were to ask me, you know, who the newspaper for the Canadian military is, I don't <laughs> I think it's the Globe and Mail as well. I'm not sure <laughs> if, there, if there is one. So the Stars and Stripes, is that right? Is that what the Stars and Stripes, because they were in the news about being, you know, defunded. But then I think President Trump said, like not under his watch, it would continue. Uh, it was it was one of the first times that I had heard about the Stars and Stripes, but it just became a part of the zeitgeist of the world. And so maybe you can tell, like, what is the Stars and Stripes, and and how is it different being an independent news source for the military versus being in mainstream media? Yeah, no, Stripes has got such a great story, and it's got such a unique mission. So Stars and Stripes is probably the only news entity on Earth that message is contradictory to the wishes of the public relations arms of said country military. When I was working for Stars and Stripes, my paychecks came from the Department of the United States Army. And the way that it was set up is um, certainly during the Civil War, and then it um, got shelved, and then certainly it came back during... World War One and World War Two and stuck around, um, but it is a, it's more or less a spot for or an indep or an independent voice for service members to get real legitimate information. I mean, it's really interesting in how analogous it is to the work that McClatchy does. And mm -hmm. the reason that I say that is is that McClatchy is a fantastic local news source, right? If you want to know what's happening in Miami. You go to the Miami Herald or El Nuevo Herald. I mean, even you look at all like all the stats that we can see internally and stuff from trust and where communities turn, and it's going to be to those places because they've engendered that trust over a long period of time, and they're really high quality publications. If you are a service member at uh, Camp Lejeune and you are concerned about the quality of the water at your base, the pretty much, I mean, granted. Um, the, the local newspapers may well, in fact, report on that, and they probably will when it becomes more of a story. But the folks that are going to have the pulse of that story probably from the outset is going to be Stars and Stripes. If you are a young service member who is looking to deploy downrange and you are wondering what morale actually is like for somebody who's at a Ford operating base on the side of a mountain in Afghanistan, um, Stars and Stripes has reporters that are still embedded in those places that are writing dispatches and sending them back about like, what I mean, how are how are these um, 22 year olds who are still fighting significantly long wars um, intermittently? How are they feeling? How are they reacting? What is their what is what's going on on the ground? Um, so it's that. And I know I know I kind of went off on that for a little bit, but I mean, it's definitely a passion point for me and making sure that 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 type of speech in, is pro is protected and lives on. Um, Stripe certainly moved. And by no means do I have any fantastic inside information. We moved toward a little bit more of an advertising-driven model in the past, but the money that they receive from the federal government um, allows them to make sure that they um, can deliver newspapers, um, like hard copy newspapers, to places where guys can and women cannot get internet and mm -hmm. places like that. I and mean, they still cover all those local issues too around the world. Well, that makes sense. The 
the business model of media has changed significantly. And so sometimes it doesn't make, you know, capitalist business sense to continue doing something in a certain way from a financial perspective, but there's still a requirement of, you know, news information reaching. So it might not be, advertisers may not support the cost of, you know, printing and deploying these print newspapers to the front lines of Afghanistan. You know, that doesn't seem like something that fits very well into a business plan. And so it, it makes sense that there's some funding around that. And I think around local news, uh, just today, I think Google made a announcement today or yesterday that they were going to start funding more news uh, organizations and news stories. Facebook has made some announcements as well. And I think that's that's necessary because, I mean, I live in a part of Vancouver, North Vancouver, and it was the first time. So there's two times that I personally felt the appeal or the necessity of local news. The first one was when I had kids. Uh, as soon as you have kids, you really start caring. As an adult, you don't necessarily care about what's going on in your neighborhood that much. You're not really going to the community center or enrolling yourself in, in soccer. So you have kids and all of a sudden the seven or eight miles around your house are insanely important to you and you need access to information about them. So that was the first time. And then the second time that it happened was when COVID happened. So uh, there's you have these national stories about COVID and outbreaks, but that's less important to me for my personal health than what's going on at the senior center down the block and what's going on in the school system that my kid goes to. And that type of news isn't always that easy to monetize, I would find. So I'm wondering if uh, what your thoughts are on what makes local news so important, especially right now. It's uh, you hit the nail on the head from um, the perspective that you just had from the idea of kids, from the idea of COVID. Um, it's all it's all super contextual right? It's literally the heartbeat of your community. I, like a lot of other people who are in media, have subscriptions to large news entities when I'm looking for large breakdowns and items like that. But if I had to tell you what website do I hit the most, I'm out in Sacramento. Is it the Sacramento Bee or is it the New York Times? It's probably become 60-40 Sacramento uh, Bee and probably even greater than that, probably 70-30. And when times like this where the wildfires, um, as you probably well know, out in California, are, um, we had a, we got a little lucky and had a little lull, but they're definitely back again in the Napa area that's very concerning. Even though that's, you know, probably a 90-minute drive for me, 75 to 90 minutes, that's certainly top of mind. Um, so... I think when you really break down all the things that people need and all of all of the information that people need today, there's no way that you can cover it in one, two, maybe even three publications. And I think that the more that local news, I don't want to say digitizes, because I think that's not given a fair shake to all of the progress that they've made in the last five to 10 years. But I think the more that local news um, sort of ingrains itself into the digital diet of the consumers locally the more that I think that they are going to find that they have more and more subscribers. I mean, COVID was, a uh, again, I'm not an audience, so I don't want to sit here and misspeak, but from every, for, for all intents and purposes, COVID was a subscription spike for everybody because everybody was concerned, right? Everybody wanted the information. They first, they wanted to know whether or not they were going to get it. Second, they wanted to understand what was safe, what wasn't. And I mean, you can kind of go down the line there from, 
just all of these significant needs that people have in their everyday life. And that local news is gonna, is gonna fill them all. Um, and so I think that that's, a it's a really interesting and important, um, thing to have, I think, as a society. And I think people are understanding that. I mean, COVID really hammered at home, just sort of like you said. Yeah. So you have this career in journalism. Uh, you're reporting on sports, then you're reporting on, you know, the military, and then at USO, it, it, it becomes broader than that. And then your career brings you to McClatchy on the other side of the table. So, you know, if we're thinking of the editorial side of, of a news publication, and you have the advertising or sales or revenue side of a publication, you move over to the creative lab side. Now, tell me what drew you to that side of the business? And, and secondly, what makes it fundamentally different now that you've been both, you know, editorial side and branded content side? So what drew you there? And then what makes it fundamentally different? Um, love of storytelling, once again, and a very interesting opportunity. And I would say what drew me there was circumstance, frankly. Um, we were moving to the West Coast um, from my wife's, uh, for my wife to take a new position. And my time at the USO was uh, therefore coming to an end just from a geographic standpoint. Um, so when I started really looking around and thinking about what I wanted to do next, I didn't really want to change. I really enjoyed my time at the USO from a from a storytelling and from a from from just digging in the weeds and un unearthing some of these just great tales. So in looking around and certainly plugging into connections and things like that, working with the folks at McClatchy, many of whom I knew from um, other previous uh, professional circles and points like that just made a whole bunch of sense. Um, it was somewhat serendipitous timing too, in the sense that the creative director at the time was actually leaving on maternity leave um, and they needed someone to come in and fill in her for her in that role, at least temporarily. And then I just ended up staying for the long haul and becoming the general manager about a year later. But just to fill in, to circle back rather to what you said, um, or what you asked about what appealed to it, it's, I'd never done agency side storytelling before. It had always been either for a client or from the perspective of news gathering and trying to figure out what the user wanted. Um, who more or less, I mean, if you think about it as a reporter, the, the user is, or your reader at the end or your viewer in the end, um, certainly is sort of like your in-house client, if you will, if you're at a large publication or covering a beat or something of that nature. So I was really interested in what the agency side would be like, what, what I could bring to the table there and how I could use all the things that I learned in-house, um, especially working with different vendors that we would bring in, whether, especially at the USO, um, such a large organization, you have to bring in a lot of vendors, even though they, we had a really robust communication staff at the time to sort things out and help you with the brand and help grow the brand. So yeah, and the last part is, is that my experience as a reporter and my experience as an editor for so long at Stars and Stripes really gives you a love almost. You have to love having something new to dive into every day. Um, you obviously know what your day is probably going to be like, but you also have no idea if news is going to break. You have no idea if one story is going to fall off, if something's going to become more important, less important, et cetera. So doing that for clients, even though I'm more more, I guess my job entails a little bit more client relations and overall concepting and 5,000 foot view than the absolute tiny details. It's still such an interesting challenge um, that I've really grown to, I was excited about and I've really grown to love since. 
We'll be back to the episode in just a few seconds, but first, we have some exciting news for you. At Pressboard, we love stories, but we know how hard it can be to measure them. So we're here to help, whether it's a sponsored article on a news site, an Instagram post from an influencer, or a video on YouTube. Our tech measures it all. Pressboard is already trusted by Spotify, Intel, NBC Universal, Hearst, and thousands more. And here's the big news. Listeners of the podcast can try out the Pressboard platform for free. Just email info at pressboardmedia.com right now. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I've found that a lot of people that end up in the branded content studios of publications, they came usually from one of two paths. Either they were, you know, an art major and they went through the advertising, copywriting, design side of the world and they they came into that. Or they did come from the editorial journalism side. And often you get a mix. Probably that's what makes a content studio, you know, work is this idea that you have some editorial chops, you've got some design and advertising, because it's quite different. I imagine as a reporter or journalist, you, as you said, you're speaking to the reader. What's, what is this reader interested in? How do I uncover this story for this reader? How do I give them the information that they want? Over, when you move over to branded content now, you're doing a lot of that same thing. Like, what is the reader going to be interested in? What do they want? What news do I need to get across to them? How does this story help them in their everyday life? But you have a, another stakeholder, which is the advertiser, the company that is, that is funding it. I imagine that that must be the fundamental difference between journalism and branded content is this additional stakeholder that is now a part of it. Would that be right? Oh, for certain. I mean, you you look at um, I mean, the the most fun part about journalism is that you get to go out there, you get to break news, you get to tell great stories about people, but you also get to have a lot of creativity. I don't think that comes up as much when people are talking about journalism because people are more prone to talk about the gravity of journalism and the seriousness of it, which it is. And it's incredibly important for a functioning democracy to have a fair and open press. But there's a lot of creativity that goes into journalism. There's a lot of fun that goes into journalism. And I think that what you get to do when you're a little bit more on the branded content, client advertising side, however you want to frame it, um, is that fun, the the sort of charting your own path every day, um, leaves leaves it obviously a little bit because you're certainly satisfying the the needs of your clients and making them the best campaign possible but i think you almost amp up the fun just a little bit more which kind of sounds silly to say almost but i think it's true because the creativity then becomes pretty much wide open um the best clients are the ones that are the, the best clients are the ones who know where they want to go but are very willing to let give you the keys for a couple a couple months and let you drive the car to get them there because they have that crystal clear vision. They know what their KPIs are. They know that they're looking to convert. They know that they're looking to grow their Instagram audience or what have you, just making stuff up there. But the folks that are really loading you up are the ones that are willing to banter with you, willing to be creative and, and sort of have almost that interesting deep dive playful nature of it and i think that that's where the two places overlap more than at least my personal career more than people might assume yeah i've always thought that what's what's great about branded content is you have a bunch of storytellers they act a lot like the way that a media organization would but then you also have this ability for it to be really well funded which i know is is a challenge you know covering a a story on a beat sometimes you're not going to have an unlimited budget or or a large budget to be able to cover a story. But in this case, you might 
you know, have some dollars behind it that you can afford a, a videographer and travel and high quality shooting and timelines that maybe are longer than, you know, having to get a story in by Friday. I'd love to hear an example of something that you've worked on recently at McClatchy that you're specifically proud of or, or you know, that was maybe different than other things that, that you've done. No, for sure. And there's, and you're a hundred percent right about the, about not only the funding, but sort of the elasticity on the timing. Um, we did a campaign for the uh, Miccosukee tribe of Indians of Florida who are down in the Miami area, just outside the Everglades. Um, just a ridiculously great client to work with. Um, but it's one of my favorites because it was just, I don't know that I'm necessarily like a puzzle guy, but I really do enjoy unpacking complex things. That's why I'm drawn to journalism and storytelling and the like. And it was an extraordinarily robust campaign. So for a little background, our studio does a lot of video storytelling. We do, my personal background is in print journalism, and then I picked up the video later in life. We do a lot of video, we do a lot of print storytelling, but this client not only wanted all of those things, but they wanted multiple video series. We came up with an idea to pair them with a prominent Native American artist and rent a uh, three walls in the Wynwood district of Miami to get them in front of incredibly large crowds for the start of Art Basel. We did video installations where we went out and filmed um, different prominent members of the tribe who had really interesting backstories. And we put those on large video screens at Miami International Airport um, in local shopping malls that were kind of high end. And then we did all of that and wrapped it all in a couple different microsites. So the overall um, trajectory of the campaign was all about awareness and it was all about reintroducing them into the community because they have this amazing amazing backstory and they do a great job on their own getting um getting their brand out there they do a lot of advertisements with pro sports teams and folks know the folks know the logo they absolutely know the logo they know that they have a great resort casino and golf course um, but they don't really know who the people are behind all of it so that was that was the entire goal and it was just such a fun project to work on because it was kind of like what i was telling you they really gave us the keys and said what would be, if we could create a robust campaign, what would that entail and how would you bring it to life? And they trusted us to get them results. And that was, that was just a fantastic experience. I, I find it interesting, the perception. So there, there probably is a perception and maybe this is my own perception, but I imagine it, it's somewhat prevalent. It, you know, you have background in print. McClatchy is very well known for. Have, I mean, how do you not become known when you've got 30 print properties that are distributing essentially, you know, <laughs> their name is everywhere, right? It's being dropped off at uh, people's doors and it's in news boxes. So there's with good reason that become known for this large, uh, widespread print property. But this campaign that you're speaking of, it seems like it incorporates event marketing, because, you know, you're going to be at an event like our, our Basil and doing graffiti on buildings. Uh, you're doing interviews that are living on video and that are being distributed on TV screens in malls and airports. You're building microsites. That feels a lot larger than what I think the perception would be that, you know, this is going to be an article in the newspaper. Do you find it hard to get past that perception of you being, maybe personally, you being a, a print guy uh, based on your background or McClatchy being a print organization, is it still a battle that that is a battle for perception that's fought? In some circles, it is. It really depends on, 
I would almost say it really depends on the setup of the advertiser um, in the sense that the advertiser will understand oftentimes if they have a significant marketing department, they'll understand that we have or will probably have been pitched by us already about that we have a really robust data operation, which is actually one of the coolest things that we probably don't talk about. I'm sure the sales teams talk about it on the sales calls like a good amount, but I probably don't give enough lip service to it. All of the ways that we can um, um, take data and try to figure out what the best way to approach the storytelling is. Definitely, when I when I first got here, there was a lot of stuff where it was like, oh, you guys do video. That's interesting. Oh, you're working up a, a video team. Oh, I see more video on the website now. Oh, now every story that I go to on the website with the journalism has a video header on it, and unless there was an oversight or a very good reason for it not to. So I think the company sort of cleared that hurdle in the last five years for the people who are hyper-local, for the people who are plugged into the publications and understand from a day-to-day business what they're doing. But that said, when we do go in and we do start talking with potentially national advertisers or potentially um, other large regional advertisers who don't necessarily have that big of an exposure to us, there is that perception that we might only be, might or maybe not only be print, but might be print first. So it's always fun to sort of dispel um, some of that stuff. And it's always fun to really break down um, all the things that we have to offer because between the data operation that we have and then we, um, McClatchy has a, as sort of a multi-part marketing organization. There's the sales marketing umbrella that um, my creative lab team is under. Uh, but there's also a media strategy arm and there's that data arm and how we all sit down and work together. I mean, it's no, it is no surprise when we're pitching a client and we have eight people sitting around a table or now virtually sitting around, uh, sitting around a Google Hangout or a Zoom call. And six of those eight people have not, for a very good reason, very little or no background in print whatsoever because they're so plugged into digital um, and digital client solutions. But you're definitely right to ask the question. And I think a lot of long-term publishers have to face that all the time. But it's a... it's almost fun at times to explain to them like, hey, you know, like we can do every single thing that you think of us. If you want a really cool double truck ad in the Sunday edition of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, we've got you covered. We can we can make that shine better than anybody. But look at what we made for this company about um, this really interesting interactive quiz uh, to get you further down um, a purchasing funnel or further down an awareness funnel to get you to sign up for an app or something about the seven different cruises you should be considering taking in 2021 and why cruises might be a bad example for COVID, <laughs> but you know, seven, seven different cars that you might be considering buying now that the, now that the battery Tesla revolution is here, if you will. And what are the pros and cons, stuff like that. So it's always fun to show them how. They should partner with us because we have the journalism chops, but they should also partner with us because we have the journalism chops that that basically in their market, we can match anything anybody else can do digitally. So that's always a fun explanation to do. Yeah, it's a bit like, you know, a lot of agency skills, but then having this other part of knowing the pulse of, you know, a certain topic, but probably more than anything, knowing the pulse of a community is really interesting. I can't imagine an advertiser being able to get all of that from a traditional ad agency because a traditional ad agency doesn't have people reporting on what's going on every single day, every single hour in most of the major markets across the U.S. Do you see that the future of media and publications as it relates to branded content or working with advertisers, that it'll become a bigger part of the offering? Or do you think it's always going to be 
you know, an additional piece that can be added to the traditional advertising of, of pages and, and banner ads on the site? I think it all goes hand in hand. And I think it's becoming more, I think more than anything else, it's all about partnership now. When I think about the clients that we work with, I think that they want us to get, they want that quality of us getting really deep down into their story, right? Just like the journalism would. I'm certainly in a positive way or an interesting way that's benefiting their brands. That's why they've come to us on the advertising side. But I think as we get more away from cookies and more into contextual stuff like everybody's been reading about, I know that there was that really interesting New York Times story in Digiday a, a week or so ago, um, just about how they took advantage of COVID to already start planning, start planning against that and what the future is going to look like in sort of a more robust, proactive way. Um, I think as all that stuff starts to build up, I think people are going to want more of the content simply because when you, if you only have contextual advertising against, if I only have the choice of advertising in your, I can, I can throw something in on a food story or I can throw something in on a business story or something like that. The high quality content is going to set you apart. And I think that that's something that people are going to look at more in the future. And that's really something that excites me a lot um, is the idea of whether it is their in-house teams doing this and then putting it in the publications and or with the publishers rather that they feel are best or whether it's coming to like a really great higher end studio like McClatchy has and saying, I really need you to make me a good content series or I really need you to make me a good three, three part infographic. Um, because I need to find a way to monopolize that attention in a different way. And that really is what excites me about the industry overall. Um, looking at it, I understand from a data standpoint um, and a targeting and tracking standpoint how it, it just creates all of it. It's probably looks to many folks on that side. And trust me, that is not my area of expertise. I, I lie on the um, on the creative side, but I can definitely see how for those folks it might be it might seem perilous. But I'm very excited just from a content side about what opportunities those are going to bring, because I think a lot of brands are going to have to arm up, if you will, in the storytelling a little bit more than they have. And we already see a ton of brands doing that. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be really interesting. Even as a consumer, I'm sort of interested because you see stuff now and then I'm, I'm no different than anyone else. You see stuff now and then that you absolutely know is paid content. And, and that's this is obviously what my team is always working toward creating. And that you look at it and you've already decided, hey, this is paid content, but this is so interesting and this adds value to my life. And this is something that I'm, I need to know anyway that I'm going to read through and I'm going to evaluate it appropriately. I'm going to understand the brands on it. But at the same time, I also know if I'm a discerning consumer and people are getting obviously smarter about the context of this stuff by the day, I'm going to know that it's in that brand's best interest to tell me a good, accurate, interesting story to further their goals. So I think that that's a, it's a very interesting place that we're moving toward in that respect as well. Yeah. I, I've always thought that the branded content started out, it wasn't even called branded content. It was like sponsored or native. And it did seem like a lot of brands were trying to sneak into editorial, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I remember early in like the early days of it, they say, ah, oh, can you make our logo smaller? You know, maybe we shouldn't mention this here because it was more of a PR piece than anything. Sure. And a bit of a paid PR. But I've seen that significantly change in where the brand is trying to be as upfront as possible because they're super proud of it. Uh, I also see that this is happening in, you know, funding of TV shows and funding of movies. You have brands that are, are getting behind movements and then uh, putting putting out whatever story they want. And But it has to be in an interesting way or else people just aren't going to look at it. I'm not going to watch something. 
I'm in this industry and I'm not going to watch, I'm not going to take some of my time, which is already a finite resource and spend it and spend it with something that I'm not that interested in. So I've seen a really nice movement towards that. Now, what I think is also interesting is consumers, which are just regular people, are becoming more and more savvy about this ad industry, which I've been in since I was like, you know, how you wanted to be a journalist when you were 10. I wanted to be or in sports and, and journalism. I wanted to be in advertising. And what I, I loved was just the psychology of it. And actually, my sister texted my sister. Janelle and her, uh, my brother-in-law Tyson, they live in Australia right now. And she texts me and she's like, have you seen The Social Dilemma yet? And I actually <laughs> haven't watched it yet because I know what my reaction is going to be. It's like, oh, yeah, I know this. This is how it works. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is how algorithms work and targeting. And how do you think Facebook became this big of a company was by providing this insane data and targeting uh, and the ability to, to get people to stay for th that, those are the metrics that we transact on. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think regular people that haven't spent 20 years in this industry are becoming much more knowledgeable about how this all works. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that there's going to be a bit of a shock, like there is right now when a documentary comes out. But then people just become more cognizant of it. And they're like, okay, this is a brand. This brand is paying to work with this media property because this media property is likely credible and has an audience that they don't have. And then I can evaluate it based on how good is this story? Is this interesting enough to hold my attention? And then they can make a cognizant decision of, am I going to work with this brand or not based on, based on this story that I've just read? So I like that things are becoming more obvious uh, or more clear. I think that's the only path for it. I think you can only trick people for so long uh, before, before they start to rebel against that. We saw that with banner ads and ad blockers pretty early on. Uh, people who people can figure out a way to avoid stuff they don't like they definitely can do it oh for sure i think it's uh i, I it's funny when you were when you were kind of going through that i remember i want to say the first piece of branded content that i'm ever cognizant of of, of just retaining was uh was a cinco de mayo buzzfeed listicle um, back when like BuzzFeed list, I mean, this is like the dawn of BuzzFeed and I forget what it was for. It was either for like Cuervo or Taco Bell or something. I mean, it was entertaining. And I remember looking at it first and like furrowing my brow because back then I was, I'd probably just left journalism and I was like, what is this? You know, still having like a little bit of that, you know, piousness of like, this could confuse people. And I think we've evolved to the point where. Once people like anyone confronted with any piece of information right now, um, if they're like as a as a discerning viewer is going to need to need to break down is going to want to break down. Like, where is it coming from? Who is it? Why are they giving this to me? And what's like almost what's their goal? Like and in a very quick uh, motion. And I think the more that we give people credit for knowing all of that, both as I mean, from the client side, from the publisher side, um, all the way around, um, the better stuff that we're going to end up making. And I think that that goes into that just goes into so well something that we're seeing. And um, I, I know I heard this on like your previous podcast, and you're talking about how much people are like want to see their passion points and want to see their um, beliefs reflected by brands, but in an authentic, on, on authentic way. Um, and I think that that's that's such a fascinating path that I think we're going to see people go down more and more over the next, you know two to three years, I think it's going to be a very, very interesting thing. I mean, how long, and I don't know that this is going to be a thing, but will the next election cycle, will will brands vociferously be endorsing people 
for president, Senate, stuff like that. I, I don't know. I, I, I certainly don't have a crystal ball and I'm not, uh, I, I don't want to by any means present myself as somebody who's like ahead of the trend by any means. I mean, knowing that, but it's going to be a really interesting question that brands are going to have to ask. I was reading a story the other day about, I forget who wrote it, but it was basically about how the audiences for influencers who are essentially brands themselves when they get large enough, um, how they are not necessarily tolerating their favorite influencers sitting out the election from a opinion standpoint. And they are actually kind of turning and peppering them with questions and being like, where do you stand on this? Which is fascinating of, its, of itself, because obviously those people live on their lifestyle and their opinions of things. So they're going to need to want to share them um, and be like a 24-hour PR machine. But it's it's just really interesting to see where the landscape goes from there. Because if that's, if that's the dynamic and setup now, it can't be too long before the brands that are those outspoken brands that really want to talk about the environment, that really want to talk about income inequality or things like that, are going to have to decide if they want to take more stands or if they were going to want to lessen that push. Yeah. Well, I think this is, we're talking about people being critical about advertising, you know, advertisers involved with editorial content, which I think is really important. Be critical of everything, be curious about everything. Uh, but beyond branded content, I think this is something that, that people are doing more and should be doing more just as it relates to news. A lot of us get our news on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and I was talking with my wife about this, about how hard it is to dig into the source of that news, because one person shares a, you know, a quote on an image, right? They post a image with a quote on it on Instagram. There's not an easy way to track back where that originally came from. I imagine you as a, with a journalism reporting background, understand the value of a source. The source oh, is for sure. key to it. But I think some of that isn't as clear to the world, right? We see something on Instagram is shared by somebody. We trust that person. And mm -hmm. so they are the source of our trust. And sometimes that means that's an influencer. We've, you know, we've trusted this influencer. We've been following them for a long time. When they say something, a lot of people take that to heart. Joe Rogan, I don't think is, you know, I listen to Joe Rogan's podcast. I by no means think he's an expert in you know, anything other than probably MMA and acting and stand-up comedian, but he'll he'll talk a lot about different subjects and he may not even intentionally be saying it as advice, but people do take it that way. People take these influ influencers, media properties, and brands as well pretty seriously. So I like that we're moving towards a more critical, more curious way of people looking at, at advertising the same way that they look at news. Absolutely. I think it's such a... It's such an interesting question for the platforms too. And again, I'm, I, I don't, I'm, I'm speaking from a consumer perspective as well and more from a journalist perspective than anything else. But I mean, what Twitter and Facebook have had to do with the current president, um, to as far as labeling things and, um, curious parts about misinformation, like when that, how, when and how, um, does that get sort of, uh, grown or um, to the, to the public as far as, um, monitoring and things like that. I mean, that, the, that brave new world side of it is completely fascinating because you're right. It is all about sourcing. And I think people, as they're evolving with all the problems that we have with misinformation are starting to, um, do their own homework. Um, the, the folks that want to are, are starting to do their own homework a little more, certainly this election cycle, but I'm, I'm completely fascinated how that's going to play out even, even in the next two years. Yeah. 
Well, I think the you already have this natural ability to look at things through this journalism lens, right? It comes naturally to you. I think it's a skill set that people in general are are going to value. It's going to be something useful for everyday life. So I, I've been super interested to talk to you. I love that you came from that area, started out being a sports reporter, and then and then worked your way through, you know, Stars and Stripes, the USO, over to McClatchy. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what McClatchy and you and your team will continue creating as we as we go through this brave new world, especially with everything going on in the world right now, a big election coming up, still COVID. It's going to be an interesting time moving forward. I'd love to, uh, we do a, a book club here at Pressboard. And so before I, before I let you go, I'd love to get your favorite book. It doesn't have to be, you know, I often I'll ask this and people will pick the smartest book that they've read. <laughs> so <laughs> be, doesn't, there's a, no criteria that this is the smartest book you've ever read, but just a favorite book of yours that you've had that you could recommend to, to listeners? I'm trying to think because I just picked up, uh, it's funny you brought up time and I just picked up um, Audible actually right at the tail end, right before COVID started. I started becoming a more religious Audible listener because I was on the road so much with clients and, and the occasional shoot here and there and stuff like that. So I can go with favorite book that I've read this year or ingested listened to this year. Um, the one that strikes me is uh, it's called The Biggest Bluff. Um, it's by a New Yorker writer uh, turned poker player. Her name's Maria Konnikova. Um, and I like it for a bunch of different reasons. One, um, back when uh, back when online poker was legal in the United States, that was a whole lot of fun. Uh, I had a lot of fun with that before that uh, that turned down um, um, with uh, with when 2011 when that all crashed um but two it combines the two things that i really love and the first one is um kind of like we've been talking about as a theme throughout this entire conversation is just the love of narratives um the love of unpacking a really big story um, a big arcing story that has some interesting sense of discovery for the author more than anything else um and then um the second part is it unpacks a complicated topic in a way that people can actually sit down and break down and understand. I'm um, having loved poker in the past. It doesn't for anyone who's like, Oh, that's not interesting. I don't want to know the ins and outs of how to win a poker hand. It's not about that at all. The, her background's in psychology. So it's not harping on math. It's not harping on EV expected value or anything that you would, you would expect on percentages and stuff like that. It's really, um, it really dives into basically how you almost communicate with other people and how you tell a story and read their story through a game um, and how she ended up coming with some really interesting personal um, discoveries through there. I'll stop giving away the book yes. so they can actually go read it and make her some money since I already synopsized it there for 45 seconds, but <laughs> yeah, no really enjoyable, fun, fun. Listen um, if you're on the go or just want to spend an enjoyable evening sitting in your backyard or something. Love it. Well, we'll add that to uh, to our book club list. I'm reading Lords of Discipline right now, which I found out about on another podcast on Dak Shepard's podcast. They talked about it, uh, oh, and it's awesome. really interesting. It's kind of about the military schools in the U.S. Canadians are, you know, naturally enthralled by U.S. politics and folklore. So I think uh, <laughs> we uh, I watched the debate last night, right? And I don't think that I've watched a Canadian debate. <laughs> oh, really? That's interesting. The Canadian debates are quite civil. <laughs> it's a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine a Canadian 
debate. There's no one's really, if someone interrupts, there's a lot of apologies for interrupting. <laughs> so I can't, can't imagine. I'd love to see a side-by-side of the Trump-Biden debate and the last uh, Canadian debate. And uh, there would be some significant differences between them. Oh my gosh. Probably, probably more, probably more coherence north of the border after, after two nights ago as well. Definitely, so. but a lot less entertaining. I'll tell you that. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's a American American tradition of making good TV. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much for being on the show today. I uh, love chatting with you. Uh, really appreciate having someone with that journalism background in the branded content space. I think that adds a lot to to what brands get as well when they come and they're working with studios like McClatchy. So I wish you all the best and thanks again for being on the show today. No, thank you, Jared. This was fantastic and I, I really appreciate it.